You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, a Namshak publishing production featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around the sacred masculine. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode, but here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Somo was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshok Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo. For a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. Ten metaphors for recovering the sacred masculine. So very briefly, the first archetype I'm dealing with is Father Sky. And we must remember that the Newtonian world, modern age, locked down Father Sky. We were told Sky is inert and dead. Get over it. Now, with today's cosmology, it's opening up. That is huge for men. It's huge. There's no telling the implications of our recovering a relationship to Father Sky. And when I say men and the masculine, I'm talking about women too. I'm talking about your husbands and your brothers and your lovers and your sons and grandsons and your father and grandfather, but I'm also talking about you. And that's part of your recovery too, because <laughs> women too have been damaged by a toxic masculinity. And the proof of that is that they allow their sons to go off to war to kill other women's sons. And that's pretty ridiculous, as, as Pablo Casals said years ago. Learned that from his mother. Another archetype I play with is the blue man. The blue man, you know, uh, Swami Muktananda had his tremendous mystical experience, the greatest one of his life, where he saw a blue pearl that turned into a blue man. And it just changed his life totally. He overcame his fear of death, and all kinds of consciousness and creativity exploded for him. Well, interesting enough, Hildegard Bingen, Western, mystic, she had a vision of the blue man, and I put her vision up against his, and it's amazing what they both have to say. 
And Hildegard says the blue man is the healing Christ in all of us. And for her too, it is about creativity. It's about consciousness. Let's turn now to a really big one in our time, the green man. The green man is, among other things, a naming of the goddess within the male. The last time the goddess returned to Western culture was the 12th century. And the last time the green man came through in a heavy way was the 12th century. My mentor, Père Chenou, a wonderful French Dominican, said that the only Renaissance that worked in the West was the 12th century Renaissance. Because it was grassroots, it was women, it was the young, it was freed serfs. Unlike the 16th century Renaissance, which was top-down, aristocratic, and so forth. What happened in the 12th century blew the lid off of Western culture. And that's when we invented universities. So we reinvented education. It also reinvented religion. The cathedral, cathedra, means throne. It was a place where the goddess sat in the middle of the city because in the 12th century, culture moved from country, feudal country, land-based and monastic to these cities, which were flooded with young serfs, freed serfs who had just led the system. So the goddess's return is not just, as we know, about women. And Green Man is one way of knowing that. It is a recognition that men, too, carry the goddess within. And the goddess represents creativity, the imminence of divine creativity in all beings. So you'll see the mouth plays a tremendous role. The fifth chakra. The fifth chakra is very important. It's about our generativity. We're giving birth to trees, to leaves, to plants. So the Green Man is about our relationship to the plants. And of course, the plants are the oldest of the living creatures. And the Native Americans say the plants are the wisest of all the creatures because they invented photosynthesis. <laughs> Where would we be without it? They're eating the sun, which of course is another connection with Father Sky. The green man connects us to Father Sky. All these archetypes, of course, interconnect. So it is all about our intimate relationship with nature. And of course, that is why it's so significant today at this time of eco-crisis and eco-collapse. We relearn. Archetypes return at critical moments in history for reasons. At this moment in history, and there's no question in my mind that the number three moral issues of our time are the ecological crisis, the ecological crisis, and the ecological crisis. Because you can talk about anything else, but if humans don't have healthy water, healthy food, healthy soil, healthy bodies, healthy babies, healthy minds, and healthy animals and other beings to delight our hearts and souls and move us, it's over. It's over. It may take a while, but it's over. Now, there's a clarity here in the green man archetype and why it's returning. It's a very strong archetype. The green man is a warrior, a warrior on behalf of the earth. That is what the green man is telling us today is the role of the man, whether as father, as teacher, as preacher, as counselor, as husband, in all our work, in all our relations. The green man archetype, which is about Love, wisdom, combined with knowledge, uh, has to um, imbue it. it. It brings forth the powerful energy. I was especially struck by the green man. Being raised in this patriarchal society and wanting to be successful in this society, and also just in my personal family, I identified, as it happened, more with my father, sort of had him as my model for how to be in this world, than I did my mother. So as a result, I made some of the same mistakes that Marian Woodman talks about in Addiction to Perfection that uh, a lot of her female clients suffered from. 
First of all, my animus was alive and well and developing, in some cases, not in a healthy way. In some cases, it was a healthy way. It was just able to come out. I would like to announce to you, this is maybe the first time I've ever announced it publicly, that the first day of kindergarten, I was elected to be the president of the Tomboy Club. <laughs> so I'm card carrying. <laughs> Clearly, my Anuus was alive and well. And also in that kindergarten, I managed somehow or another to be wrestling with a couple of boys at the same time. And they were pretty tough guys. And I ended up somehow on top of both of them at once. And I came home and announced to my dad very proudly that I was third toughest of the boys and first toughest of the girls. <laughs> I really enjoyed sports, and it was difficult for me in those times uh, to be able to really pursue sports because that was something the boys did. So I would wrestle with my brother and uh, climb trees and you know do what I could and that kind of thing. Uh, finally, in high school, a few of us girls who could actually play volleyball for real, not just stand and giggle, you know, <laughs> got to play with some of the boys. And I just had a blast, you know, so much healthier uh, to let it come out in that way than in, I think, what happened so often with girls when they're in junior high and high school with the sniping and the uh, aggressive social climbing. There's a kind of aggressiveness and a pointed kind of aggressiveness that I think is masculine but toxic mm -hmm. and it was very painful for all of us girls who have been through that so those are some ways that the green man has been a healing presence for me to think of i just want to mention interestingly enough i'm going to be speaking about tara and she's the central figure in that taka there and she's green yes. <laughs> just so happens <laughs> so that fertility that's been very important to me, and to have it be connected to the green man. When I was uh, living from a garden for 12 years, it just so happened that my then-husband had been studying the green man. He was a carpenter and working with wood. He was also a woodsman, a forester, and that was his job. I, and I was busy growing plants. And because I hadn't been so close to my mother then, to go to the mother in that way was so healing for me. But I think it was also healing to be involved, at least somewhat, with the green man archetype. You know, it's also the dryad, which is the spirit of the tree, is depicted in this same way. I, I had a dream a couple of years ago to start a new order, not a religious order, but a spiritual order that's beholden to no particular religion. But it is about the sacredness of the earth. So it's called the order of the sacred earth. And everyone in it will take one vow. I promise to be the best mystic, that is, lover of Mother Earth that I can be, and the best warrior or defender of Mother Earth that I can be. That's the one vow that will unite us. And you can be atheist or Christian or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist, indigenous or goddess, anything, if you want to focus on this one vow with the rest of us. I have two young people, one's 33, one's 28, a man and a woman, who are kind of directing this, will be the leaders. I'll be an elder in the background. And we've done this book where each of us have written an essay, and then we've invited about 20 other people to bring just two-page essays kind of in response to their take on the vision. I'm excited about this. You know, there's not time for a new religion or a new church and all that. We don't need new religions and new churches. But we do need communities, and we do need a focus 
I know a 26-year-old young woman responded when I shared this idea. She said to me, this is just what my generation needs. She said, we're so dispersed because of social media. We need a focus. This would be a great focus, she said. Count me in. I look at the history of certainly Western religion, and I notice, you know, religion often runs out of steam and goes down the wrong detour. (laughs) But when it does, orders pop up, like in the third century, you had the desert fathers and the desert mothers. So these young men and women went out to the desert to get away from the empire. In the um, sixth century, fifth century, you had St. Benedict and his sister, St. Scholastica, starting the Benedictine tradition, the monastic tradition. Did a lot of good work in the Dark Ages. But then it ran into malfeasance. It got too aligned with the feudal system and privilege in the 12th century, and then at the end of the 12th century, and beginning of the 13th, you had St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic starting a whole new version of an order. And then the 16th century, you had the Protestant Reformation, which I interpret really as a series of lay orders. Each denomination had a, has its own charism, its own ritual, its own theology. I, I interpret that historically as new orders with an emphasis on the lay people. And then, of course, also 16th century, you had the Jesuits in the Catholic Church being born. But here in the 20th century, nothing's happening. People are just leaving church. So that's why I think this idea of an order makes a lot of sense. And, of course, you have orders in the East, Hindus and Buddhist orders and, and so forth. So it's not just a Western idea. But the thing about an order is it travels much more quickly. And it's much more uh, flexible and responsive, immediately responsive to the cultural zeitgeist than a church is or a new religion is. And we don't have time as a species. We're running out of time. So I think an order that's very portable and has only one vow and welcomes diversity of traditions or no tradition and diversity of lifestyles, like this order of the sacred earth will do, I think maybe it may have something to contribute. And that's where I'm putting a lot of my energy these days. She, as I have said before, represents emptiness, he, luminosity, or appearance. It's probably not necessary to mention, but I will, that in Tibet, a lot of men imagine themselves as Tara, or they also, in the preliminary practices and often in the practices to transfer one's body to the pure land at the time of death, we practice this and make a habit during life, and then at the moment of death, we can do that, according to Tibetans. Often in those practices, we see the sacred marriage above us, and we imagine ourselves quite often as Vajrayogini, who is obviously female, but many men will practice that they are Vajrayogini. Then again, as a woman, I've imagined myself to be Vajrasattva, who's male, and Guru Rinpoche, who's male, and so on. So we don't take all these things literally, and we imagine ourselves often in union with a consort. And so if I'm Vajrasattva, I may be male in union with Nyamakarmo, uh, who's female, for example. It loosens us up from attachment to our sexual preference or our sexual manifestation in this body. It completely understands that we need to bring forth the pure masculine and feminine, and we need to unify them in a healthy way. In some of these practices, as I was saying, will be Vajrayogini, whether we're man or woman, and imagine this perfect union above us and eventually then join with that union. So there is a complete union and the complete melting away 
of this idea of separation. So there's another sacred marriage, in my opinion. I think a lot of men who are not rewarded for <laughs> displaying their contemplative side cover it up by going fishing <laughs> and calling it, oh, we're going fishing. I mean, 95% of a hunting trip or a fishing trip is doing nothing, <laughs> waiting. Mm -hmm. I think the masculine energy of our culture not only does not reward, it tends to ridicule. It's really a subtle quest for meditation mm -hmm. and for honoring this need we have for space. The Western culture at this time leaves us with very few practices to honor this intrinsic, this natural need we have for silence and honoring the nothingness and the emptiness. So I think this is one more place where Buddhist practices can really bring some balance back to Western. And men who've, who have chosen a, a more artistic profession entertain their powers of silence and solitude a lot. Artists who have their own studio and demand their silence, or writers and so forth. You know, mm -hmm. so I think I think many men come to this, but it's more in terms of their vocation, if you will, their work, than necessarily seeing it as spiritual practice mm -hmm. or religion or anything like that. You know what I mean? One of my faculty members um, over the years was a teacher of uh, Tai Chi and mask making, mm -hmm. and he would go to San Quentin prison and do Tai Chi and mask making with the prisoners there. And he said whenever he did it with murderers, people in murderers row, the same thing happened. People come up to him after the process, the workshop, and say, this is the first time in my life that I've experienced stillness. Wow. Breathe in the silence that we've raised. All authentic prayer raises silence then the silence becomes a food for our day together, our nurturing. So take yourself now and wash yourself with the silence that we've brought into the room here from the depths of our heart. Just wash yourself three times. Eat, drink the silence. My striker says, nothing in all creation is so like God as silence. Thank you. <laughs> I think that exercises like this have tremendous potential, especially for Christians who are, well, Protestants, who are maturated in the modern consciousness, to move from text to sound. Chanting is very different from singing. You don't have to have a super voice, any note works, and you don't need light on, do it in the dark. And it affects literally the skin and the cells of the body. You know, we have to get back to these pre-modern ways of praying. So, there's power in this. One of the problems in Christianity is that our scholars, especially in the modern era, are very good at exercising their left brains and finding the exact words of Jesus and all this and all this stuff. But we don't realize in the, the Bible is much more than a source book for analyzing. You can chant. And chanting the Bible is a totally different experience from reading it, thinking about it, analyzing it, taking it apart. So what we're going to do is chant a line that we know is authentic from the historical Jesus, and that is the line, the kingdom of God is within you, the kingdom of God is among you. Because his phrase means both of those things. It's not just about within, it's about among. In fact, in the Gospel of Thomas, he says the kingdom of God is spread around the earth, which is certainly an among consciousness. So, the kingdom of God is within me, the kingdom of God is within me. The kingdom of God is within me. The kingdom of God is within me. 
the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshock, please visit namshock.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy of Audio Wall Productions on behalf of Namshak Publishing. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Anonymous 4 for Harmonia Mundi. For full-length recordings by Nawang Xiong, please visit soundstrue.com. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.